Right. Well, good morning. Uh, Pastor John is away for this week. I think he's down enjoying sunny Florida. And so uh, we will enjoy our sunny day, though today is pretty nice out, so we'll take it. Well, if you've been following along with us through uh, our journey in Genesis, uh, Pastor John has been doing some pretty interesting stories. Some familiar, like Noah and the flood and Adam and Eve. Uh, there's also, though, some pretty confusing stories when it comes to Genesis. Uh, last week being a great example of uh, the mandrakes and the battle of the babies, if I were to name it that, or I'd probably call it the womb warriors. Uh, maybe it'd be better, but they don't let me teach those kinds of lessons up here. So it's been a pretty interesting journey. But God, uh, John has been doing a great job of showing us that even in the mess of life, whether it's adultery or murder or lies or just brokenness and sin, God is still working out his plan, right? God is still at work even in the mess of Genesis. And so uh, if you want to find out how infidelity, unfaithfulness, brokenness, and sin can be applied to your life and how you can follow Christ better, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of those messages. But today, what I want to do is I want to take a step out of Genesis and, and walk into a New Testament passage that actually uses some of these same stories, some of these same characters to teach us about our walk with Christ today. So it's kind of an application of what we've been going through here in Genesis. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, if you didn't have a Bible or if you forgot yours, there's Bibles throughout the room. And it's on page 1008 in uh, those black church Bibles that you'll find in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you are welcome to take that home for you. That is a gift. We love to give out Bibles, love people to have the Word of God for themselves. So it would be our joy for you to just take that right out of that row and take it home with you if you don't have one. So Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, before we read our scripture, just our few verses that we're going to look at and highlight this morning, I'd like us to stop and pray that the song we just got done singing would be true, that God's word would come alive in us and it would break up that hard, dry ground and uh, teach us some things. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have even to read your word, to have it in front of us, preserved for thousands of years, so that we can be molded by it, shaped by it, changed by it. Lord, your word brings life, and I pray that it would bring life to us today. May only truth be spoken here, and may we only understand things that you have for us to understand. Lord, keep lies and deceits and uh, misunderstandings out of this room. But instead, Lord, would you uh, shine brightly with your truth. Lord, convict us, encourage us, and draw us closer to yourself this morning. Amen. I want to start by reading just Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. So I encourage you to follow along. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So our section starts with a therefore, and to repeat an often quoted and horrible pastoral joke. When you see a therefore, you have to look and see what the therefore is there for, right? So therefore is the conclusion. It's the, the, like the end of a point that somebody is trying to make. They're saying, because of everything that's taken place before, what I've already said, now this can be true. So we're looking at the conclusion, but before we can understand the conclusion, we kind of have to understand where we've come from. Well, the book of Hebrews is essentially, and this is a way oversimplification, a, uh, a book that says Jesus is best. That's what it's trying to prove. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the rest you get on Sabbath. He's going to be a better rest. Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron and even better than Melchizedek. Jesus is the best sacrifice that could ever be made because the blood of goats and bulls has to be repeated. But the blood of Jesus, once and for all, it is the best. Jesus is the best. It keeps this theme going that Jesus is the best. That's where we get from. And then in chapter 11, chapter 11 starts with verse 1. You'll probably recognize this verse. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so really what chapter 11 is, is saying, hey, because Jesus is the best, do you believe that? Do you think that that's true? Do you have faith that Jesus is the best even when it's hard to see? Even when you don't feel it in your life, do you believe and trust that Jesus truly is the best? And then the rest of chapter 11 is just example after example of different characters from the Old Testament who showed faith that at least at one point in their life, they believed that Jesus was the best. They thought and saw that the value of Christ outweighed whatever it is they were going through. They were willing to trust in the Lord. And so they had a confidence to walk in that. It's, it's known often as the hall of faith. Just like the hall of fame might have the best baseball players or football players or the guys that stood out above the rest. You put those in the hall of fame. Well, the hall of faith is these Old Testament characters that showed incredible faith. you got guys in here like Abraham and Moses and Gideon, just to name a few. There are people that faced persecution and beatings and imprisonment. They were leaders, champions. They were men and women of renown and fame that trusted in Christ. Real-life people living through real-life circumstances. And here, the author of Hebrews Hebrews wants us to see them as the cloud of witnesses that is pointing to this truth that Jesus is the best and we can trust in him. And so we're going to consider this cloud of witnesses this morning and not necessarily look at their individual stories, but see how they can point us in the right direction. 
And so I have three words if you're a note taker and you want to take notes and just kind of follow along. There are three words that are going to kind of uh, provide a structure, a ladder that we can climb upon. So the first word that we're going to look at is judge. Judge. The second word that we're going to get to is jetsam. Jetsam. Maybe a word you don't realize, but J-E-T-S-A-M. Jetsam. We'll get to that one. And then the third word to conclude our time this morning will be joy. Joy. Judge, jetsam, and joy. So let's start by looking at judge. See, uh, this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 is pretty familiar. It's often a memory verse that uh, people memorize and they quote it. It's on coffee mugs often. And I've read it and I've probably memorized it and thought about it often in the past. But I think that I got something wrong my entire life until just a few weeks ago. I think I was misunderstanding, or if not misunderstanding, I was misimagining what this verse meant. And that's what led me to want to preach on it today. And so I want to look at verse 1 again. So look down at your Bibles and let's read just verse 1. And I'll show you how I was kind of misunderstanding something. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, I understood like what the words mean, and I understand this race that we're in. The race makes sense to me, this race of life, as we're seeking to run towards Jesus. I get that imagery. I also get the idea that like in Greek, that word race is agon, where we get our word agony from. And so if, you, like, if you're not a runner and you're saying, hey, let's go for a race, agony, that sounds like the right word, right, that you would describe. And sometimes, let's be honest, this race of life that we are on trying to seek Jesus is agony. It's tough. It's hard. And I am no runner. I know this surprised all of you, like, what? No. Um, but there was one time that I felt this race of agony. And this kind of, it comes to my mind every time I think of this agonizing race that we're on. See, I was going for a run one day, more of a jog, in my neighborhood. And uh, all of a sudden, I hear this noise coming from behind me. And as I'm jogging along, my legs start to get pelted with rocks and sticks and stuff. And I look behind me, and it was one of those street cleaners. You, ever, you know that picks up the sand and the salt that goes around at the end of winter? And this street cleaner was just coming up behind me, going nice and slow. And those big bristles were doing a horrible job of picking up the sand and putting it in the machine. They were doing a great job of flinging it everywhere, hitting cars and scratching stuff, all the way up into people's yards, just sand and dirt and sticks and everything flying. And they're hitting me as I'm running. Now, if I was smart, I probably would have just peeled off into a yard, let it pass and keep on going some other direction. I'm not that bright sometimes. So I thought, I could beat this. I'm going to win. I can outrun it. And so I pick up my pace, and I start going. And I'm feeling pretty good. I was like, I just got to make it to the corner, and I'll turn the corner, and I'll go a different, different direction, and then this just like street cleaner can go on by. And so I give it my all, and I race this thing to the corner of the street. I turn the corner, and I'm like, yes, I win. 
and my joy turns to sorrow as soon as I realize that he turned the corner with me, and now I'm running up a hill, and the little sand Zamboni is just right on my heels, and I can almost imagine the driver of the thing. He knows what he's doing. And he's just chasing down another jogger in the neighborhood. And I can't outrun it. And so I run all the way up the hill with the thing right next to me, just pelting my legs with salt and rocks. And I get to the very top and I just collapse, just fall in somebody's yard in exhaustion and defeat one more tick on that guy's belt of a jogger taken down with his machine of pain. So I understand an agony of racing. But what I was missing, what I think I didn't get from this verse, was that word surrounded. Surrounded. Like I've read it. I didn't miss it. I didn't skip over it. And I know what it means to be surrounded. If you're surrounded by friends, you've got friends all the way around you. If you're surrounded by enemies, then everywhere you turn, you seem to be facing your enemies. If you're surrounded by water, you're probably drowning. Surrounded means you've got things all over you, around you. And we are told here that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. People who had faith in the supremacy and the worth of Jesus Christ. But what I missed was that I always imagined myself outside of that cloud. You ever remember reading like Charlie Brown, the Peanuts cartoon, and there was that character Pigpen? And everywhere he went, he just had that cloud of dust and dirt, right? If you've seen that in the cartoons, he's just dirty everywhere. That's being surrounded by a cloud. But I always imagine when I read this passage and I read through Hebrews chapter 11, I'm on the outside looking in. I'm not part of the cloud. I'm just observing the cloud. And that gets us to our first word. When you make that mistake and see yourself outside the cloud, then you have the temptation to judge. To judge. And judge in two different ways. There are two main dangers that we can run into if we start judging from the outside. We can stand apart and judge from above, or we can judge from below. To judge from above is that you think yourself better than those that you're looking at. You think that you don't belong in that group because you're better than that group. You don't suffer from those things. You don't struggle through this. You can look at their sin. You can say, well, man, how could they possibly do that? Why are they going down that road? Why do they, you know, focus on those things, excuse me, in their life? That's just broken and sinful. How could they possibly do that? I don't do that. You can see their lack of faith and you can highlight their failures. And that's pretty easy, to be honest. When you look at Hebrews chapter 11, you can look at this list. and You got some pretty messed up dudes, right? Abraham lied on multiple occasions. He didn't trust in God all the time, right? He said that his wife was his sister and, you know, it just was messed up. And then it just gets worse from there. You got Moses, a murderer who covered up his murder. David, he's in this list. Also a murderer, an adulterer, and a liar, right? And just, he just, don't even get me started on Samson. I mean, you could look at that guy's life and say, 
How is he even in the Bible? That guy was just so unfaithful for his entire life. It's not until the very end that he finally kind of trusts in God and commits suicide killing a bunch of Philistines. And it just, you can look at this list and you can highlight all of their failures. And you know what? We can look around at one another and do the same. You can look at other people in your neighborhood, in our church, even in the, the church universal and say, wow, did you hear about that pastor that did that sinful thing? Have you seen that worship leader that was in charge of that big band? Man, do you see how they failed? They fell right on their face. And it's just not very good at all. We can judge all the people around us and say, hey, you guys are in sin. I'm not part of that group. Don't, don't associate me with them. But here's the problem when we see everyone else as a, a bunch of weak faith, disobedient, sinful people, and that you think you're better than them, you stop running. When you think that you've made it, when you think that you've achieved something, you stop running. This race towards Jesus Christ, if you look around and you say, yeah, okay, I'm not in this cloud, I've gotten past it, then you think you're done. You give up and you stop. The point of this passage is to think that you're going always towards Christ. You're not trying to outrun your neighbor. You're trying to pursue Jesus. And if you change that and start, well, as long as I beat that person, I'm done. Then you're going to miss out. See, there was a marathon runner named Abel Mutai who was in a race in Spain in 2012. And he had a pretty commanding lead of this marathon. He got all the way to the end, and he got confused by the signs and the way they had the finish line marked out. And so he gets to the, what he thought was the finish line, and he stops running, puts his hands in the air like in victory. He's kind of looking around, giving people high fives in the crowd. And he's like, whew, I made it. I'm number one. I finished. But then all of a sudden, the guy who was in second place, a Spanish man named Ivan Fernandez Anaya, started shouting at him, yelling. But this guy was from Kenya. He didn't understand Spanish. And so he didn't move, didn't do anything. All of a sudden, this guy comes running up at him, has this panicked look on his face, and then just starts pushing him. And Abel's like, what are you doing? Why are you pushing me? And Ivan pushed the guy 10 meters all the way to the real finish line so that he could actually win. Ivan could have won, but he didn't. Instead, he pushed Abel the rest of the way. Because, see, Abel thought he won, and so he stopped running. When we think that we've arrived, then we too will stop running. And if we stop running, we're going to realize that we've missed it. We've missed opportunities. We've missed chances for God to grow us, change us, to work on us. And I can tell you, I know why you're not done, is because today is not your funeral. And you're not dead. You're alive. You're here today. So that means God is still at work in you. And he's still working to finish you and to complete the job that he has started. And he will faithfully finish, but he will decide when he is finished, not you. You'll know you're there when you fall into the arms of Jesus. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's when you know you're finished with your race. Until then, keep running. These people in Hebrews chapter 11, they're in the hall of faith, not because they lived really good lives. They're in the hall of faith because they believed in a really good God. And that's what we're doing as well. It's not about living a really good life. 
It's about believing in a really good God. And so, let's not stand above the cloud and judge those within. Let's realize that we're surrounded with them. We're sinners just in a different way. And we've got some work left to do. We've got race left to run. The second way we can judge is we can judge from below. And here's what I mean by that. We can look up and think that we don't belong in that group because we're unworthy. I don't belong in this cloud. I I could never do anything that these guys did. You could read this same list of failures and adulterers and murderers and then flip it and in the same day even say, oh, but I could never have faith like David and face up against Goliath. I would run scared. I could never do the things that these guys did. They were going to be sawn in two. They're thrown in prison. They were going to be beaten and persecuted. There's no way I'm going to be like Paul and be singing a song sitting in a dungeon. I don't think I have that kind of faith. I can't rejoice as I'm walking out of prison like Peter was. Like, I just don't have it within me. I can hardly get out of bed in the morning. And here God says, no, you can do great things. No way. I can't be part of that group. Don't count me among their number. How can I be surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that I could be counted among them? I'm part of this cloud? I'm in the midst of this witness that other people are supposed to look at and say, wow, look at the goodness of God. Man, I don't know if when people look at my life, they see that. How can this be true? How can I be part of this cloud? Well, I'm glad you asked. You might feel yourself unworthy. And the truth is, you are. You are. But that's only half the story. You are unworthy But Jesus Christ is worthy. And God loves you even in your unworthiness. And he has saved you the same way he saved every single person that's in this cloud with you. By his grace. All by his grace. You were saved by his grace even when you were a sinner. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it's not when you get your life all figured out that God loves you then. It's not when you do great things and you prove yourself acceptable to him that then he welcomes you in. No, God comes looking for you. He finds you face down in the mud of your sin and brokenness and shame. And he picks you up and brings you to himself. It's when you are farthest from him that he comes and finds you and brings you nearest to him. And he does that by his grace. It is God's grace on greatest display when he saves a sinner such as you and such as I. And the question is, do you believe in that grace? Do you have faith just like these people in Hebrews chapter 11 by these other cloud of witnesses? Do you have faith that God's love is even big enough for you? He can forgive even that sin, even that brokenness that's coming to your mind right now. And the answer is yes. Do you believe it? You must. And if you do believe it, then by God's grace, trust that the salvation that came upon you and rescued you out of that mud, the same God that rescues you there is also the same God that walks with you through this race and keeps you going. 
much like the Spanish runner, is pushing along the Kenyan all the way to the finish line. God is right there. Every time you fall, he's like, I've got you. Pick you up. Let's keep going. Let's keep fighting. Let's keep racing. Oh, no, you're going the wrong way again. Let's correct that. And God is there to get you going in the right direction. And all by God's grace, even the faith that it takes to trust him to know what direction to go, is, a, is God's grace on you. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, it's grace either way. You have great faith and you accomplish great things for the Lord. Awesome. That's all by God's grace. When you trip and fall and you embarrass yourself, you embarrass your church, you embarrass your family, you embarrass Jesus Christ. It is by God's grace that he picks you up again, dusts you off, and says, let's keep running. When we realize it's all by God's grace, then we will stop judging from above and judging from below, seeing ourselves as unworthy. But instead, we will join with the cloud of witnesses and we will run with freedom. We will run in freedom. We're free to live, free to let the weight of the past, the shame, the guilt just fall off. All these failures can be pushed to our past and we can get up, we can try again, we can keep going. And when the world looks in and says, man, how are you even called a Christian? I know you. I see your life. It is all messed up. You can say, well, by God's grace, his love was big enough even for me. And then when you do great things for the Lord and you take the gospel to the far reaches of the planet and you're faithful in giving and serving and sacrificing and you're great at loving and forgiving and you do whatever it is that the Lord is prepared in advance for you to do in this world and people look at you and say, wow, what amazing faith. You should write a book. This is awesome. Your story is amazing to see how God is at work within you. Then you can say, all by God's grace. I worked hard, yes, but God was there every step of the way, and I could do nothing outside of his power and grace in my life. And so then I can keep on running, knowing that I'm not finished and I still have work to do. I think the Apostle Paul, he does a great job of summarizing this. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 9 to 10. Listen to how he puts it in his life. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See, when we judge from below or from above, you forget about God's grace. And that's what I think I missed in this first verse of this passage. I think that's what the word surrounded is intended to cause us to think about in our life. That you're in the midst of this cloud of witnesses. Good or bad, it's a cloud of witnesses of people that have been saved by God's grace. Not who somehow earned their place there. So the second word that we're going to look at is that word jetsam. Jetsam. And I'll be honest with you, I did not know what this word was until this week. But it fits so well. And it sounds familiar though, doesn't it? Like think about like jetsam. Like th how about if I add 
flotsam and jetsam. Is that a little bit more familiar? Some shaking heads, mostly kids. Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid, the two little eels, the evil eels that work with Ursula, their names are Flotsam and Jetsam, which I thought Disney just made up. But no, those are actual sailing terms. They're like nautical terms that have meaning. Flotsam is the stuff that when your boat sinks, all the junk that floats to the top, right? The boxes and the broken things, that's flotsam. Jetsam is the stuff that when you enter into a storm or it's rough seas, you purposely throw it overboard, getting rid of it to save your ship. You, on purpose, take all the cargo that you've been carrying and you make that hard decision that says, we can try and get this cargo to where it needs to go, but instead, we got to save our lives, so just throw it overboard, let it sink to the bottom. That's called jetsam. Jetsam. And I think that's the image that we should get from our passage here, where it says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. See, we need to throw the weight and sin that entangles us overboard. We need to create some jetsam in our lives because we're at risk of sinking. So as you run this race, there should be a trail of jetsam behind you as you continue to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. So what is this extra weight that you carry in here today? What is it that burdens you, that's on your mind right now, that's hindering you from running? Are there sins that in the moment they seem small and insignificant? Maybe it's just a bad attitude or it's jealousy or unforgiveness or bitterness. Maybe it's anger and you let that weight just hold you down so that the, when the winds of life blow, you're at risk of sinking and you're hindered in your journey. Do you feel guilty this morning? You know your heart. You know what you've done. You know what you've thought. Nothing would frighten you more than for us to say, all right, we're going to watch a movie of your life and put it on the screens for all to see. Let me tell you, the Lord, he watches that movie every day. And when we come to God and we're ashamed of what we've done, and we feel like we have to carry all of this weight of sin in our lives, let me read for you an encouraging promise from God from Psalm 103. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. See, the Lord knows of your sin. You don't need to hide it from him. He knows all that you have done. And he loves you anyway. We've already seen that, that it's when you were a sinner, Christ died for you, for, for us. He isn't holding that sin against you anymore if, you're, if you have faith in Jesus Christ. And if he's not holding it against you anymore, you no longer need to carry it either. So you need to create some jetsam. 
I need to find those weights and those things that are just bearing down on you. And you've got to throw them overboard. You've got to get rid of them. You've got to take that burden that just is so heavy. Well, that one's light. But you've got to take those things and just get rid of them. Let's create some jetsam this morning and leave that stuff behind. God's already thrown it as far as the east is from the west. That's really far. You're not going to find it again. So let's let it fall off the boat. Let's lighten the load. And let's walk and run in freedom. But you know, it might not just be sins. It could also be what the author describes as every weight. See, sometimes it's not our sin that weighs us down. It might be the sin of another that was committed against you. Something terrible that you'd rather never speak of or even think of again. And yet, that memory seems to go with you everywhere you go. It's something that happened to you that shook you to your very core. And there are things that sometimes they cause us, to be honest, to have a really hard time having faith in a God who is good and who is with us. It's those events in life that become burdensome. And we carry those weights really close to us. This is one of those weighted vests that you wear to exercise, right? And everything you do now is just that much harder. And so when you're just walking through life and you're trying to do normal things like other people, it seems like they do them so easily. But not you, not when you're carrying this burden around. Not when you have that memory that pops up. Not when you have that difficulty trusting because you've been broken and hurt and lied to and abused. When the sins of others start to pile up upon us and weigh us down so that the easiest task becomes exhausting. When this race seems too far. When you're like, if I've got this weight, how could I ever run to Jesus? Just leave me behind. Leave me for dead. I don't think I can make it. Well, 1 Peter 5 tells us to cast all our anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Let me tell you this morning, if you're walking in here with a weight, a burden, then I want to allow Jesus the space to lift it off of your shoulders. Jesus is here and he's ready to take it. I don't have an explanation for every single situation and I'm not trying to explain why it happened or how it could happen or where was God in that moment. But what I can tell you is that when you seek the Lord, he is there to remove all your fears, as it says in Psalm 46. And so today, just imagine whatever that weight is that so clings to you, it's become part of you, and it's part of your identity. It's even hard to let it go. Today, let's let Jesus take it. Let the weight fall and find a new freedom to seek the Lord and run to him. He is patient, he is faithful, and he is kind. And Jesus will take that burden. It might even take a lifetime to continually create more and more jetsam. But the more you cast off, the quicker you'll go. So let us lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So let's create some jetsam. So we have judge, we have jetsam. And the third and final word for this morning is joy. Joy. Notice that in our text, we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, but we're not told to look at the witnesses. We're actually told to look to Christ, the author, the perfecter of our faith, right? We're told to not look around us, but to look through the cloud and with the cloud toward Jesus. And when we ask the question, what was Jesus focused on? What, how did Jesus have the strength to endure this agony of a race when he was running this race? We're told what his motivation was. It says, uh, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So we look to Jesus as our example that his joy motivated him in such a way that he could endure the cross. The strength of his endurance came from the engine of joy that he had in his heart. And with this engine of joy that was pumping out power, he could experience the worst of abuses, betrayals, beatings. And through it all, he could say, is that all you've got? You can give me more. Namely to the cross. Hurt me, insult me, rip out my beard. Give me that crown of thorns. Because the engine of joy that was in his heart pushed him forward and kept him going. And it was a joy in his father. A joy in giving glory to God through his actions. It was a joy of rescuing people that he could then call to himself. It was a joy that he had in every sinner who repents and he gets to spend eternity with you. It was a joy in you that he was looking forward to. On the cross, that's what got him through, was the joy that he experienced. It was a joy that he had in his heart and a joy that he saw as his goal. And that was the proper motivation. And you know, when we're motivated properly, we can do some incredible things. Now my sister, she was motivated by a kind of a joy. Maybe it's a joy you share. It's the joy of ice cream. Everybody likes ice cream. But when she was eight years old in our neighborhood, there was an ice cream man. And for the kids in the room, they're gonna be like, you guys did what? There were ice cream trucks that drove around the neighborhood playing a song. And then you would go buy ice cream from a total stranger. And it was like weird. We trusted strangers back in the day. But there was one ice cream truck that our parents said, if you ever hear that one go by, you can go buy ice cream from them because they knew him. He was like a coach for a soccer team or something. And so they said, whenever it goes by, playing that special song, you can go get your ice cream. My sister heard that song, and as an eight-year-old, she shot up off the couch, ran. I don't know where she got the money, but she got some money, ran out of the house, down the street, barefoot, just booking it as fast as she can. I don't know what the world record for sprinting is, but she beat it that day, and she chased down the ice cream truck, 
caught up to it at the very end of the road and got her ice cream. And she comes back. She's not even winded. It's like she didn't even run at all. And she is not like the athletic one. You could hardly get her to do anything. But she ran with full speed after that ice cream because she was motivated. And she was just, yes, I got it. Victory. I've got my ice cream. She had the engine working. Well, Jesus, he has an engine of joy that is far stronger than the engine of ice cream. It's no four-cylinder little economy car type engine. The engine of joy is like a jet engine that when you turn that thing on, you're waking the neighbors, right? You're bothering people when you get that joy going in your life. And it can propel you forward to do some incredible things. When you're motivated by joy like Jesus was, then you can walk through that valley of the shadow of death. Joy is strong enough to get you through that miry bog of despond. It can get you unstuck from that mud of failure that you seem to be stuck in all the time. It can break through that barrier of depression, anxiety, pain, and the perils that we face all day long. When you're motivated by joy, it can get you through. If you're motivated by joy, it will get you zealous for missions. It will make you sacrificial in your giving. It will make you patient to endure through suffering. It will make you a radical forgiver and a Christ-exalting liver of life. That's what joy does for us. It changes how we walk and race this race. See, George Whitfield, he's one of my favorite historical figures. He was a great evangelist in the 1700s. Took the gospel to literally hundreds of thousands of people up and down the colonies of America and in England, sailing back and forth multiple times. And he just would preach constantly. It was actually said that he was preaching like out loud with words, with his voice, more than 40 hours a week. Not preparing sermons, preaching sermons more than 40 hours a week for decades so that all could hear and glory in Jesus Christ. And he recounted in a sermon one time what started that journey. And for him, he says this about when he first heard and believed and trusted in Christ and started that motivation. He says this, Christ formed in my heart Oh, what a way of divine life did break in upon my poor soul. Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory was filled in my soul. And it was that joy that propelled George Whitfield to share the gospel and create thousands of churches and converts to the glory of God and all by God's grace. But he was motivated and inspired and propelled by the engine of joy. See, in Psalm 37, it says that we should delight ourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So when joy in the Lord is your goal, and when that is what it is that you're pursuing, then God will meet that joy and walk with you in it. Philippians 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 
The Lord is at hand. See, it's when you're rejoicing, you know that God is there with you because God is a fountain of joy. He's kind of like that fountain in the park that's just spraying water. And the water is joy that's overflowing from his heart. It's the joy that Jesus had that got him to endure through the cross. And it's the joy that will spill out from him, land on you, and change your heart so that you too can walk in joy and faithfully follow after the Lord. Jesus said it himself in John 15. When he says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, Jesus wants nothing more than to take the joy that's in him the joy that got him to endure the cross and give that joy to you and have that joy stir in you something magnificent. Have that joy give you the power to push off every weight and sin that clings so closely. To have that joy in you that will push you forward to know that you're not done yet and he will get you all the way to that finish line. It'll be a joy that's inside of you that will get you to do things that 30 years from now you'll look back and say, wow, I did not know I was capable of that. All by God's grace. That was amazing. So I don't know how you came in here this morning. Maybe you came in standing outside the cloud of witnesses. Maybe you had heard that there is grace even for you. And that salvation of Jesus Christ is big enough to welcome you in. Even you. So I'd encourage you to join with this cloud of witnesses that even though our lives are messed up, both the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith and the people in this room, we all by faith need Jesus Christ. Would you join us in having that faith? And then by God's grace, maybe you came in here He said, I don't know if I can keep on going. I think I'm done. But let me tell you, your race is not over. Think of ways that you can love more, serve more, pursue zealously after missions and love and forgiveness. And you can increase your joy even in the midst of the agonizing race that we are on. And Jesus will take us all the way home. And we will discover that he truly is worth it if we would just have faith in him. Maybe you also came in here and you were dejected, feeling beaten down. As if you tripped so far back, the whole group has passed you by. And you're sitting there watching other racers finish. And you don't think you're ever going to make it. You're ready to give up. Let me ask you to, to take your eyes off the pain. Can we as a cloud of witnesses encourage you to to stop looking down at what is broken and what you've left and the challenges that you see ahead. Can you join us in pushing all these failures off of the boat, creating some jetsam in your life and laying them behind you, even the sin, and pushing forward with endurance 
because of the joy of Jesus Christ inside you. May you see the joy in us and may you see the joy in Christ that he had to rescue you from your sin. And may that joy change you and reach your heart and propel you and motivate you forward this morning until one day we all enter into the that space where God can truly say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your master. Until then, let's keep running. Let's keep running. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are gracious. Lord, we have a tendency, I know I do, to judge. To judge others and to maybe even think I'm finished. To judge myself to think I'm unworthy. But Lord, remind us today, and as we walk out of this room, may it be ringing in our ears that you have grace even on us. Then Lord, whatever it is, those burdens that we're carrying, whether it's a sin that we've committed or a sin that somebody committed against us, Lord, there's brokenness in this world and it can hold us down. Lord, would you be gracious once again and take that burden from us? Would you lift it from our shoulders? And would we walk out of here with a spring in our step because we can feel it behind as we can sail away from it, free of its power to hold us down? And Lord, would your joy so motivate us inspire us and spill out into us that we then work and love and serve with your joy in this world. Lord, we experience a lot of things that are not joyful, but Lord, to be near to you is to be filled with joy. So Lord, draw us near to yourself, we pray. And Lord, I pray this special blessing for all of us in this room. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's join in singing our final song together. Yes, let us stand and sing with joy, knowing where Jesus is at this very moment. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that one.
tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people say, <laughs> 